0: This morning we're continuing in our study of the superiority, the greatness of the Son of God. When you look at the book of Hebrews, remember we introduced the study by looking at Hebrews. And the study of the Hebrew, the letter, actually it's a speech more than a letter. But this letter, if you would is given to a group of Hebrew Christians living somewhere in the area of what is known today as Turkey. And they are undergoing a lot of persecution. And it's, it's beginning to be something like what we're experiencing now. If you don't have the shot, you're treated differently, right? Do we really begin to see, and I don't want to bring this up and start a deal here, But I do want to say this, and I really think it's true. I think we're beginning to see the foothills of medical martial law. May I say that without being rebuked? What do I mean by that? Using medicine, health, finances, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. To begin to restrict control. Oversee the population, correct? All in the name of that which is good. Christians living in the Roman Empire in those days were experiencing much worse than what we are beginning to understand. So, how many of you, whether you're on you have taken the shot or having and whatever, not the point, but how many of you beginning to see? that the society is becoming much more restrictive and regulated. Aren't we seeing that? Do you like it? Or are you beginning to be concerned about it? This is something of what the Hebrew, the Hebrew Christians were feeling. I put it in that context. So we'll, oh, yeah, that's right. I got it. I got it. What's your name again? This is Gail, everybody. First time here. Sorry about that, that I didn't mention you. Not sorry, you're here. And so they, they began to feel this. They began to feel the constriction and their Jewish roots, for instance, where they used to go to synagogue and all of their life, religiously, fellowship, etc., financial, their whole life was Jewish. They lived as groups or clans or families of people who gathered around their belief in Yahweh, monotheistic only God. No other God. And when they were saved and embraced Christ, they were seen as those who were renegades, those who were polytheists. You know what I mean by that? Jesus is a God. Yahweh is a God. You're you're worshiping two different gods. We don't believe in poly, P-O-L-Y, many. We don't believe in polytheism. We're monotheistic, one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Remember the great Shema. Listen, O Israel, hear. Listen to this statement of faith. And as a result, uh, we really don't want you to come to our house anymore, Gwen, because you're a believer here and we really don't want that. So you just stay with your own people. And you come to my grocery store. Well, Gwen, we really, really would appreciate you not coming in here anymore. Think about it. Suppose COVID comes to a place where if you don't have a shot, you can't go make groceries. Those of you from New Orleans, we make groceries. Those of you from other places, we shop. We make groceries. Got it. But what would happen if you can't make groceries anymore because you don't have a shot? You can't go in public transportation because you don't have a shot. Do you begin to feel it in yourself? And are we coming to that possibility, Joey? Yes. We're coming there. And in some places, we are there. This is not Russia. This is the United States of America. The last place, Todd, we thought this would ever happen. But because of the pandemonium and fear that is being generated, People are willingly lying, laying down their freedoms for this. We see that, don't we? And there is a divide happening in the country. Them's who do and them's who don't have a shot. It's not a vaccination. There's six reasons why it's not a vaccination. I call it a shot. But we won't quibble about that. Now, the Jews... Before 70 A.D., before the destruction of the temple, we're experiencing this and much, much more, much more. You can't go to the doctor anymore because you don't have a shot. You can't see us anymore. We can't let you in. What do you do? What do you do? You see what I mean? We can't do the same things go the same place, and our lives begin to be hugely restricted. Plus, then there's the governmental attacks. We begin to be taxed differently because we are contributing to the health care burden of the country. So if you don't have a shot, you will pay 20% more in taxes, Steve. These are, these are things are coming. They've already started... Saying to employees and companies, if you don't have the shot, your health insurance will cost you $200 more. That's Delta Airlines, I think, a month. So am I stretching things or not? Well, I want to use COVID as a real-life example. Hey, Patsy, real-life. Hey, Valinda. Como esta, Valinda? How many of you know Valinda Moscorro? Stand up, señorita, stand up. Sent to say, sent to say. Now, I use that to say this, and I know I'm taking a little while, but you know me. I want you to get a feel for this. This is what they were experiencing, but much worse. It's coming our way. These are the foothills of the coming of the man of sin, the lawless one. These are the foothills. I think we're finally, and I'm not saying, oh, I wanted it to come, but we do what we don't, right? We want Jesus to come back, but we don't want him to come back. (laughs) Please come back, but if you come back, look what we have to go through, but uh, come on back, Jesus. But can can you, you you know what I mean, it's that, what do you call it? When you have opinion, that can go both ways. Ambivalence, Ambivalence, I like you. (laughs) I do, but I don't. I do, but I don't, right? It's exciting, but like, oh, my God, what I had to go through. And they were being tempted. If you deny Jesus, you can come back as a member of the congregation, you know, as a son of Israel, as a daughter of Israel. You can come back. You'll be back in the stores. You'll be back taking the streetcars. You'll be back going to theaters. You can fly again. You got it? Just take the shot, and you're Okay. I'm not telling you whether you take the shot or not. I'm using it as an example. Hey, Bogdan, come on in. He thought he'd sneak in, but it ain't happening in my class. So, you see what's going on. For instance, Bogdan comes from a country, Poland, that he can tell you firsthand what it is to begin to have a totalitarian state begin to restrict you and strangle the life out of you. This man understands that. We're beginning to. So if you just leave Jesus, deny him, everything will be okay. And so the whole speech, the whole letter of Hebrews is given to say this. This world is going to hell in a handbasket. The difference is we're in the handbasket with the rest of the world. Correct? Correct. Now, whether we'll be taken out of the handbasket when and whatever is another story. There's nowhere to go that's going to save you. And it's going to be better for you. And if you read, reject Jesus, you lose not only this world, but you lose the next one. And so the premise of Hebrews is this. Better. Jesus is better. If you read Hebrews, just count the number of ways it says he's better. He's better. Why is he better? What makes him better? Our study has been the two reasons why Jesus is better. Now, I'm going to call on somebody to tell me those two reasons why Jesus is better. Do you ever teach class? Often, right? Do you get a chance to ask students, in the class to give an answer? And so do you say, Joe, stand up and give this answer? Never. That's the fun of being a teacher. <laughs> so here it is. I'm going to call on somebody to give. Why is Jesus better? You've got to know this. It's imperative. You got to know it. Are the fundamentals of the class that you teach, what do you teach? Biomedical engineer. By Bio a what? Biomedical yeah. engineer. Biomedical engineer. Yeah. So you teach that when they put these little things in you, they go around and doing these little machines. Uh, I don't exactly teach that. Okay. <laughs> well, whatever it is, are there basics yeah. that they must know? Yeah. If they don't know, they're not going to do well. Right. They're basics. Here's one of the most basic truths about Christianity. And I am concerned, as often as I say it, you're not getting it. Why is Jesus better? What is the reason in two parts why Jesus is better? What is the premise, the foundation, the source, the content, the truth of what makes Hebrews and every other book in the Bible so important and so true? Jesus is the son of God and the son of man simultaneously and equally. Now, you've got to know it. you just got to know it. Do you understand, friends? This is a class. I'm not here just to speak, although I hate speaking. I'm not here just to say a bunch of words. What we say in this class, hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, not because of Peter Davidson, but because of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully, and I trust the Holy Spirit, he is teaching us those truths that we just must know as believers to sustain us. And not only to sustain us, but to manifest the presence and power and superiority of the Lord our God in our lives in and through and over every circumstance, even of COVID. Amen? Yes. So why is Jesus better? He's the son of God and he's the son of man equally and simultaneously. Now, if I ask this question next week, can you remember it? If you can't, write it down. If you cannot remember it, write it down. Now, that is, we haven't even gotten into the lesson yet. I don't even think that's in the notes, is it? <clears throat> so let me skim through. So we're going, so when the New Testament says, for God so loved the world that he gave his Monogenes wios. His who? Monogenes Weos. What does it mean? His only begotten son. That's the Greek. Remember, we've talked about that. Monogenes Weos. His only begotten Son. The Apostle Paul by the Spirit of God is saying something. That God has given His only Son. The Son who is equal with God the Father. Who is of the same essence and substance and eternality and nature of attributes. With God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Divine Son with the Father and the Spirit, uncreated and not going anywhere, always will be, correct? This is who has been given. And when John says that, he doesn't say it in a vacuum. This is not a new religion. This is not a new idea. This is not a new thought. This is not new doctrine. Everything in the New Testament is the fulfilling and the amplification and the explanation of what has already been given in the old can we get that there ain't nothing in the new as far as doctrine of god and his purposes man and etc there's nothing in the new that wow i didn't know that that's brand new god just made something new this is never this is something he's never had before it's not true everything in the new testament is in the Old Testament, and everything in the Old Testament is in the mind and thought of God before the creation. Can you get this? Everything in the New Testament is in the Old Testament, and everything in the Old Testament is or was in the mind of God, the thought of God, the purpose of God, before Genesis 1.1. Now, we have to see our Bibles this way. So where does the Old Testament talk about Monogenes weos, this unusual son? Well, we've been through a lot of scripture. Let's not go back through those scriptures again. Because, you see, if we cannot or if John could not substantiate his claim that Jesus is the Monogenes weos, From the Old Testament, he's not telling the truth. You got it, Charles? So the Tanakh, remember the Tanakh. That's the Hebrew name for the Old Testament, the Tanakh. I told uh, on time this morning, I'm going to not use the word Old Testament. I've used it 52 times. The word Tanakh is the Hebrew name for their scriptures, T-A-N-A-K-A-H, Tanakh. So where do we go? Well, we've already been through some scriptures today. We'll look at Psalm 2 is one of the clear examples. So let me go through some of my notes pretty quickly as if I can. When we look at Psalm 2, we've already seen this. We were already informed that the humanity is in rebellion against God and his anointed. Remember that? Why do the nations rage? Remember, they they imagine a vain thing. Remember, they are against God. They're rebelling against God and his anointed. Now, all of a sudden, you see in those first three verses, we're talking about two persons, if you would, Two objects or whatever against whom humanity is rebellion. It's not only against the Lord, Yahweh, but it's against his anointed. Why is the word anointed so important? Because it comes from the word Mishah, which has to do with the pouring out of oil. It is a setting aside. It is the specification of a particular person for a particular work of God. So priests were anointed to be priests. Kings were anointed to be kings. This is a specification or a ministry of the Holy Spirit giving his anointing, his accreditation, his power, his work upon one person for a specific ministry. So there is someone who is anointed here. We see in verses 4 to 6 that God has installed this anointed one as his king on Mount Zion. Remember that? I have installed my king on Mount Zion. Now, we won't talk about Mount Zion, but that's the that's biblical name. Basically, the city of David, uh, Zion, it's, it's really more representative of the location of God himself and of his purpose and of the uh, fulfillment of what he is doing, Mount Zion. So I've, I have my king on Mount Zion. So how is God going to take care of the rebellion of the nations? How is he going to take care of COVID? How is he going to do it? He's going to take care of it through his king. Do we see that? Through his, if you would, agent upon the earth. There's going to be someone on the earth with us, among us, as who we are, to be doing God's work. As God's representative himself. He's going to be the king. He's going to represent the rule, the reign, the control, the sovereignty of God. Now, This morning in verses 7 and 9, we're going to see that Yahweh says that this king is none other than his son. This is not just another king. This is the son of God. So let me go through it again. I'll try to get through this as quickly as I can, not trying to, you know, race along. Why and when did God establish his his son as his king? He has established the king. He has done it. Do you remember? He didn't say, I'm going to establish it. Do you see what it said? I have what? I have set. I have installed, however your Bible says it, my king on Mount Zion or on Zion. Now, when and where? This king, why did he do it? This king was installed to fulfill God's original purpose as given to Adam and specified in Genesis 128. Adam was created To be the first one of a race of people who would rule and have dominion over the earth, bringing about the revelation of the purpose and presence of God upon the earth so that the earth would itself be the place where God would be glorified in a people and in a setting in which God was well pleased to dwell In an Eden, if you would. The Garden of Eden was to be expanding throughout the entire earth. Remember, there was the garden and then there was the wilderness. Do you remember that? The field. Do you remember that in Genesis? The field was out there. The garden was here. And God put his people in the garden and through their obedience... And through their continual obedience, God is going to expand this people, this garden throughout the entire earth so that the whole earth becomes the garden of God. In other words, the very dwelling place of God himself among his people. And Adam was given dominion to rule over the earth. But Adam, remember, forfeited that in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And when he did that, he literally handed over the rule of this world to Satan. Remember that? And so when Adam did that, he repudiated God's will. And he plunged the entire race into a slavery of Satan to do his will. Second 2 Timothy 2.26. You know, we hear a lot about man. A person has to make a choice to be saved. We hear a lot that. In order to be saved, you must call upon Jesus and ask him to save you. Have we heard that before? That's not the truth. You see, we don't have a free will to call upon Jesus in our own power. Because what do the last few words of Second 2 Timothy 2.26 say? What does it say? Do we ha- is it in your notes there? We are held by him, what? To do his will. We're in slavery. And in order to have that slavery of will broken, the Holy Spirit must come into us, give us a new heart, and break the power of Satan over us. So once that will of Satan is broken, then we now can and will call upon the name of Jesus to receive his love. Amen? That's how we get saved. We're not saved because we made a decision. We are saved because we have received a decision made for us by God himself. Amen. Amen. Otherwise, Miguel, you would never make a decision in your own because you don't have the ability to. You're enslaved to Satan to do his will. Remember 2 Corinthians 4.4. What does that say? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see. The gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we have to have it broken in us. So when that happened, the whole world came into slavery. Therefore, God had already made a promise that he is going to have a people after his own image. Where is that promise? When does God make that promise? He makes it in Genesis 126 when God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That is a statement of God's purpose, and that statement, that purpose will stand. Amen? If that purpose doesn't stand, God is not telling the truth. If it cannot stand because something is greater than God, then God is not sovereignly powerful. Correct? That statement has to stand because God is God. And nothing can come against it to thwart it. And even when something does come against it to thwart it for a while, it is only under the permission of God that Satan is able to come in and deceive the world. Do we get this? God is in control, friends. Every day, whatever is happening politically, medically, financially, or whatever in this world, every day we must remember God has everything intricately under his sovereign control, moving us step by step to the return of his great son. Correct? Everything is under control. So, he's going to send his son into the world, the seed of the woman. You remember the promise, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15? Through the seed of Abraham... The seed of the woman is going to come in the world through the seed of Abraham. Remember, we saw that in Genesis, Genesis twenty-two eighteen. The Holy Spirit tells Abraham, you're in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then we get the the. What do you call the uh, theological interpretation or understanding revelation? What is that seed? What is that? Paul says this in Galatians 3.16. Now the per- promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is Christ. Very important uh, statement there. Galatians 3.16 explains Genesis 2.18. Your seed. By the time we come to King David, you remember rushing forward many years. Israel is now a nation. And by the time we come to King David, Israel, sorry, to David, Israel is clamoring for a king. We want a king. We want a king. Other nations have a king. We want a king. And so 1 Samuel 4, uh, 8, 4, and 6, the Lord says, then all the elders of Israel, verse 5, said to Samuel, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. They wanted a king. Now, the peculiar thing is God wanted them to have a king. Right? He promised a king. He told Abraham, kings are going to come from you. So we already know Israel so Israel's supposed to have a king. So the people say, we want a king. Well, well, why is that bad that Israel wants a king and God says, hey, we're going to give them a king. But this is not a good thing. What was the problem? What was the problem? They wanted to be a king on, and have a king of their own type. Of everybody else. They wanted a king in order to blend in with the other nations. They wanted to be seen as everybody else. They wanted to have a king because they thought in a king they would have security. They could become somebody. You see, their desire for a king was about themselves and not about the will of God. Do you see the distinction? The problem wasn't wanting a king. The problem was why do you want a king? We have to make sure our motives godly. So the Lord says, oh, well, I'm going to give you a king, but you're going to be sorry. <clears throat> you're going to be sorry. And some of you may know the story. So they were wanting a king after their own hearts. After their own desires. But God would give them a king after his own heart. Here's what he promises. In Samuel 13, 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has appointed him leader of his people. Remember when Samuel came into the camp? And came to the house of Jesse, the Lord said, go to the house of Jesse, the, the man from Benjamin. And, and so all of the seven sons of Jesse came up. This one, nope. This one, nope. This one, nope. What Seven. Yeah, you have any more? Yeah, well, I have one more son. You know, he's about 12 years older, so he's out doing what? Shepherding. He's out shepherding. Bring him in. As soon as he came in, the Lord said to Samuel, this is he. Anoint him as king. A 12-year-old boy. Because this is the one who is after my own heart. So Samuel anoints him as king. Well, wait a minute. What's happening, Greg? Israel already has a king. His name is what? Saul. You see, there's already a king on the throne, but there's a king on the throne after man's own heart. But God wants a king after his own heart. Correct? Do we see the distinction there? Now, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? You hear sermons about this, and a lot of them have a lot of good content. Sometimes we get the whole picture. Sometimes we don't. The Lord was looking for a man who had God's heart to fulfill his eternal purpose. Second Chron- Chron- Chronicles 6 eight because it was in David's heart to build a house for my name. This is the heart of God through this king to build a house for my name. What does that mean? To have a nation, a people who will be according to my uh, uh, in my image, according to my likeness. Do you see it in Genesis 126? Adam was given that instruction. You're to build a house for my name by ruling and having dominion. This was Adam's uh, mandate. Given to him by God. He repudiated by sinning. And so God is going to send another king. But until that other king comes, he is going to have other examples of men and examples of, I'm sorry, illustrations of his own heart. Moving through history to illustrate, to be a type, to be foreshadowing. The one who will come, who will be the only man who has ever lived who has a heart after God. Do you see that? But this is a type of this man, a type of this king. But the fulfillment is coming, Colossians two seventeen. For Christ is the fulfillment of everything of the Old Testament. So we see these types, these shadows, if you would. Remember Hebrews 1, God has spoken to us in various ways, these shadowy ways. So the Lord was looking for a man who would build a house for his name in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Why did he give that promise to Abraham? Because he made the statement in Genesis 126, God is continuing to fulfill his purpose. Too often, too many people begin the great promises of God and the purpose of God in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Well, they've left off the root. The root is in Genesis 1-1 1-1 one, one, when God creates, and then when he tells us his purpose for creation in one twenty six, And then he tells us how that's going to work out in Genesis one twenty eight. Everything else is a revelation or an outworking of that. Everything else. And you, when you finally come to Re- Revelation 21 and 22, is the outworking, the fulfillment, the crescendo of what started in Genesis. So you wonder why Genesis is so important. You see, this house would be the prototype, the example of the spiritual house that 1 Peter 2.5 talks about, or the temple that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6.16, that God's own son will build. And you see that in Hebrews. Jesus is the son over the house. It is his own body. It is the revelation of the fruit of, Of his obedience to the Father. Therefore, the Lord sent Samuel to anoint David as a type of the man who is after God's own heart. Let me get a little drink of water. 1 Samuel 16.1. Now the Lord sent Samuel... Said to Samuel, I will send you to Jesse the Benjaminite <clears throat> I have selected the king for myself among his sons. So Jesse sent and brought David in. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. <coughs> now, that's nice. We just read something, didn't we? Man. How many of you were excited about what you just heard? Like, Wow. Wow. If you didn't get a wow, you just missed it. You just missed it. What is written in the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus. So let's go back over this scripture. I just went through it. You see how fast I went through it? And I didn't hear, oh, wow, look at this. Look at this. David is anointed as king. I don't know, somewhere around what year. I don't know. Solomon reigned about 908 B.C. This is a long time before Jesus. Let's say a thousand years before Jesus. <clears throat> the anointing of David as God's chosen king is a picture of the anointing of Jesus by John the Baptist. Let's look at the similarities. So let's go back and look at the difference, the similarities between the two anointings. Verse 1 of 16. Didn't I just say verse, uh, chapter 16, 1 Samuel? Are you with me? Now the Lord said to Samuel, I will send you to the house of Jesse. I have selected a king for myself. As the Lord sent Samuel to anoint David, he also sent John to anoint Jesus. And you, John, child, you know, he's talking about John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. John is going to be sent to anoint Jesus. Samuel was sent to anoint David. Verse 12 of that same section. In First Samuel sixteen, and the Lord said, "Arise, anoint him. This is he." And the Lord revealed David to Samuel, and He revealed Jesus to John. John one twenty nine. John saw Jesus coming and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." Remember, John says, well, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me." And Jesus said, "Look, we need to fulfill all righteousness." John said, "Okay, I'll baptize you." So Samuel anoints or baptizes if you would. David is king. Jesus is anointed or baptized to become inaugurated in his ministry and identified as the king of the kingdom of God. Remember that? Verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David. And as Samuel anointed David, Jesus was anointed by John in the wilderness. Mark 1, 19. He anoints him. Remember, under the water. Verse 13, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. Remember that? That's what he said. Listen to what Matthew 3, 16. And being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the waters were open, heavens were open, and he saw the spirit of God descending on him and lining upon him. Same thing. And finally, number five, David was anointed in the midst of his brothers. In verse 13 of that passage. Luke 3, 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. Jesus was anointed in the midst of his brothers. Do we see what's happened? God is telling us ahead of time, the one I'm sending is typified by David. But he's not going to be just another king. This is going to be the most unusual and the only one of his kind upon the earth. This is that kind of a king. This is what's told to us and prophesied in the Old Testament. So when we read all of these Old Testament stories, read them with this. Holy Spirit, show me the connection between this and the New Testament. So perhaps none of us have ever seen the connection between Samuel going to the house of Jesse to anoint David as having very much to do with Jesus. But do we see it today? It's an Old Testament picture of what is fulfilled in the New Testament. David is the type, the symbol, the representative. Jesus is the anti-type, the fulfillment, the one about whom the type is given. I think that's the right way to say that, some kind of way. Now, next week, we're going to look at the true identity of this great king whom the Lord has sent. And has sat on his holy mountain. So, one more time. Why is Jesus better? Because he is the son of God and the son of man simultaneously and equally. That's why we're here today. That's why we'll be here tomorrow. And that's why we'll be together in eternity. See you all next week. Thank you.